0: What were the motives behind the removal by foreign forces of Haitian President Jean-Bertrand Aristide back in February of 2004? How did the Clintons' supposed philanthropic initiatives enhance the family's own fortunes and contribute to the corruption of the Haitian state? Why are Canadian Special Forces on the ground today in the midst of popular uprisings? Did a Quebec engineering firm currently at the centre of a political scandal in Ottawa play a unique role in Haiti and in setting Canadian foreign policy generally? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take a special look at the ongoing strife affecting the people of Haiti and probe the underlying dynamics motivating the UN, American, and Canadian actors to continue the repression of this historically significant Caribbean island nation. First, we'll get some of the historical and geopolitical background from Haitian-Canadian organizer and writer Jean Seville. Later in the hour, we'll hear specifically about Canada's role and motivations in the Haitian coup and ongoing occupation with Eve Engler. On this week's program, the coup against President Aristide, 15 years later. The Clintons, the Canadians, and Western NGOs all complicit in a never-ending tragedy. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 1st, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakim, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The outflow of dollars from Venezuela has raised the value of dollars that remain in Venezuela on the black market there thereby helping to depress the value of the bolivar in Venezuela even further. These measures pale, however, to U.S. imperial efforts to prevent Venezuela from obtaining dollars in global markets in an effort to try to offset the outflow of dollars from the economy. For example, the U.S. has taken action to prevent U.S. and global banks from lending dollars to Venezuela or from participating in underwriting and insuring Venezuelan bond issues, which would also raise dollars for Venezuela if allowed. Bank loans and bond funding thus dry up, depriving the government of alternative sources of dollars, more dollar shortage, more Bolivar domestic currency collapse, i.e., more expensive imports, more inflation, more shortages, declining production, rising unemployment, more discontent. That comes from the article Financial Imperialism The Case of Venezuela by Dr. Jack Rasmus, posted February 28th, originally appearing on the author's blog, jackrasmus.com. In 1986, the International Court of Justice, in adjudicating the Republic of Nicaragua versus the United States of America, held that the U.S. had violated international law by supporting the Contras in their rebellion against the Nicaraguan government and by mining Nicaragua's harbors. Never mind that the United States refused to participate in the proceedings after the court rejected its argument that the ICJ lacked jurisdiction to hear the case, Never mind that U.S. also blocked enforcement of the judgment by the United Nations Security Council and thereby prevented Nicaragua from obtaining any compensation. The General Assembly voted twice in favor of a resolution calling for full and immediate compliance with the judgment with only Israel voting against with the U.S.A. But more importantly, probably because of the great attention the U.S. conviction received in the court of public opinion, the U.S. stopped mining Nicaragua's harbors and lessened outright support for the Contra's murderous attacks. The Venezuela government must sue the United States and in the International Court of Justice for creating famine by and blocking all its oil sales and stealing its bank deposits. That comes from the article, Economic Sabotage and Crimes Against Humanity, Venezuela Must Sue the U.S. at the International Court, by Jay Jansen, posted February 28th, originally published on the Guion Journal. Japan seems to want to become more than an ally of the U.S. It wants to become, again, a power in the world in its own right. Until it has achieved its objective of again being a world power, it can be expected to be a loyal ally to the USA and therefore a threat to Russia. It will not ask the US to withdraw its forces until it is ready, and the Russian government would face serious problems on the domestic front if it surrendered the islands to Japan under these conditions, so it is unlikely that a peace treaty can be concluded between Russia and Japan in the near future. So as North Korea, having suffered decades of Japanese military occupation, tries to deal with U.S. militarism in the region, Russia has to contend with both U.S. existing militarism and a rising Japanese militarism, both of which constitute threats to its peace and security, a result of unfinished business from a world war that threatens a new world war. That comes from the article, Russia, Japan, and the USA, the Unfinished Business of War by Christopher Black posted February 28th, originally published at New Eastern Outlook. (music) Assad and legitimate associated armed forces are protecting Syria's sovereignty and territorial integrity, not destroying it, as Western Newspeak would have us believe. President Maduro, too, was democratically elected. The Western-supported aspiring puppet dictator Guaido, on the other hand, appointed himself interim president with Washington's blessing. He didn't even run for the office of president. Government and media messaging that suggests that he is a legitimate alternative to President Maduro amounts to war propaganda and is part of a conspiracy to destroy Venezuela and impose the death sentence on countless Venezuelans should an invasion occur, just as the regime change war against Syria has imposed death and disaster upon countless innocent Syrians. That comes from the article, Who are the Brutal Dictators? by Mark Taliano, posted February 28th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In early February 2004, a paramilitary rebel army had crossed the border from the neighboring Dominican Republic and executed an armed insurgency of Haiti. The 2004 insurgency set the stage for the February 29th kidnapping, abduction and deportation of President Jean-Bertrand Aristide by U.S. Marines acting in conjunction with Canadian and French military forces. What followed was a 15-year occupation by foreign actors, the installation of a U.S. puppet government in Port-au-Prince, the country's capital, and massive violence directed against the poor majority. To put this operation and its aftermath in its proper context, the Global Research News Hour reached out to Jean Seville. He is an Ottawa-based writer and activist and the co-founder of the Canada-Haiti Action Network. As I understand it, you were in Haiti a few weeks before the removal of Aristide. What are your recollections of Haitian society at that time?
1: Well, I think
0: Haiti at that time kind of looked like how
1: people are watching Venezuela today. In a sense that you had a popular president who was uh, clearly supported by the vast majority of the citizens of the country, However, his support was from individuals who are powerful by the number. However, in terms of financial capacity, they were uh, the poorest in the country. And the minority in Haiti had the strong support of foreign powers, mostly the embassies of European countries, the United States, and Canada, in Haiti, who were hell-bent on fomenting unrest in Haiti, strangulating the legal government, and at the same time giving a lot of airtime to the so-called opposition in Haiti that was calling for the overthrow of the government. And uh, there were two groups, uh, uh, two faces of the same group, uh, one that was supposed to be a legitimate opposition that was composed of uh, party leaders, and, and then there was what they called the rebels. Uh, these are drug dealers, uh, mercenaries, that were being trained by the CIA in the neighboring uh, Dominican Republic. And they've been doing attacks on the territory of Haiti sporadically, uh, arriving by way of the Dominican Republic and attacking police stations, and it got to a very dangerous tone uh, by the end of 2003, uh, when several individuals had been killed. But in the mainstream media uh, of the United States, uh, Canada, and Europe, uh, you would never know this was what was happening uh, because the coverage was all very much one sided and the rhetoric of a black dictator uh, who uh, you know uh, misruling his country uh, was uh, what was being propagated uh, throughout the airwaves and uh, I remember how frustrating it was for those of us uh, who were watching what was happening uh, from the press releases that were coming from the embassies, uh, the consular warnings saying that Haiti is a dangerous place, don't go there, etc. Meanwhile, the context is that Haiti was approaching the celebration of the bicentennial of the end of racial slave- slavery and the declaration of independence of Haiti on January 1st, 2004.
0: The first successful slave revolt in the Western Hemisphere.
1: Yes, the only uh, known revolt of uh, enslaved individuals that uh, was completely successful in that uh, they chased out the slavers and created a government of their own. It should have been a moment of celebration for humanity uh, because, of course, uh, the Haitian Revolution was very influential in terms of what happened to the rest of the Americas, not only in terms of the United States being able to um, uh, more than double its size by purchasing Louisiana from the French, who uh, once they realized they were going to lose the colony of St. America and sold Louisiana uh, to Thomas Jefferson for a very, very uh, cheap price, um, but also for Latin America. Where the uh, Latin America liberators, uh, Francisco de Miranda and uh, Bolivar, both came to Haiti in 1806, and then uh, uh, Bolivar came in 180, uh, 1812. Sorry, and they all uh, got support from uh, Haiti in terms of uh, human beings who went and fought as soldiers alongside the latin americans um uh, in, in, uh weapons even the very flag of latin america that is very popular what was then called the greater colombia uh where you can see the red and blue of haiti and they add to it the yellow uh that's the flag today of colombia venezuela ecuador etc and that uh initial flag was actually uh, created with Haitian fabric uh, in the city of Jacmel in southern Haiti. Uh, And and that is, again, to uh, uh, contribute to the emancipation of uh, human beings who have been enslaved on the continent uh, since uh, the arrival of Christopher Columbus in 1492. And the only demand that the Haitians ever made of Latin American liberators is that wherever they go and conquer, they uh, should uh, free the enslaved individuals, which did not happen. They did not honor that. Uh, However, uh, you can see in modern times uh, leaders such as Hugo Chavez and uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, who uh, tried to make amends of this, for this, by supporting... Uh, the uh, struggling Haitian democracy, uh, uh, notably with the Petrocaribe program that Hugo Chavez uh, had started uh, uh, before he passed away.
0: Mm. Now, going back to the 1980s, uh, there were uh, imposed on the Haitian people these uh, IMF uh, structural adjustment programs and on all the uh, the impacts that brought about. And uh, you, we ended up with Aristide. And, and I know that a lot of the discussion that we've heard with regard to Aristide, it, it focuses on the, the individual there, and not really acknowledging the, the social conditions that gave rise to Mr. Aristide. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely.
1: And, and of course, it seems like in the United States, there was a consensus that Haiti had to become uh, the control for people who uh, do science, you know that in science you must have a control uh, that is this uh, uh, common denominator that uh, is the, in the case of uh, when you talk about labor, basically they've decided that Haiti has to be the cheapest labor in the region. What was uh, making uh, this system viable is that the Americans uh, using the dictatorship of Duvalier, uh, was able to maintain the population in fear uh, and uh, through uh, repression. And, and the United States helped François Duvalier, the, the what they call Papa Doc, establish the famous or infamous Tonton Macoute. It is the, it's like CIA agents who went into Haiti and established that uh, group. And later on, when his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier, took over in 1971 at the age of 19, um, they trained another group called the Leopards with the same mission. Uh, these groups, uh, including the so-called faux armée Haiti, or the army, never shot uh, at, you know, foreign forces or foreign troops, invaders, or anything like that. Their enemy, as they were taught, at the School of Americas, um, at Fort Bragg and and, and all of these uh, uh, military schools that the Americans were uh, managing uh, and producing militaries for Latin America in general, but in Haiti in particular, uh, their enemy was clearly identified as the masses, the population. And so uh, that was the formula, and that is still the formula to make sure that the resources of Haiti are accessible to multinational corporations, whether it is for sweatshops, whether it is for mining, um, because it's now been discovered that there's a lot of gold uh, uh, that has not yet been mined in Haiti. But the idea, it would be to establish a, uh, a dictatorship that is friendly to the multinational corporations, and uh, that is willing uh, to placate the population in order to keep them subdued by any means necessary, uh, working essentially as uh, uh, their ancestors did uh, before mm.
0: now <clears throat> there was a th- th- in the period uh, since the coup you had uh, these u um, n UN- you know, so-called peacekeepers on the ground uh, who were in fact they were uh doing what they could to uh direct or or to counter uh Lavalas and, and Aristide supporters very violently as it turns out and i, I and then the at, at the point where we had the earthquake then there was this influx of foreign aid uh and you you have you know the 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 Red Cross and the Clintons in there mm-hmm. Um, and, and it seems like, with all of that aid that went in, uh, very little of it actually went to the popu- the target population um, I, I wonder if you could comment on that 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 you know that, that whole period is essentially mm-hmm. an execution of this uh, imperial program, if you will um, yeah. so yeah I, I wonder if you could talk about how that how that evolved
1: yeah so I think first we need to address a couple of misconceptions. Uh, Sometimes in the mainstream media, because coverage of Haiti really rarely goes deep, people assume that the United Nations troops went there as a result of the earthquake, you know, to bring aid or whatever. This is not the case. The United Nations troops were deployed, as you pointed out, in 2004, to give cover to the coup. So they started to have this discourse that, you know, uh, the the global community is coming to the rescue of the Haitians, which is nothing new, really, because the U.S. occupation of 1915 had that same rhetoric, you know, that, you know, we're going in there. National Geographic, for instance, they had... Uh, a, a quote from the U.S. Marines saying that we're going in there to help our black brother uh, uh, put his disorderly house in order. You know, the, the, the white man to the rescue. White man's uh, burden. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and it's not that different uh, in terms of how they justified it in 2004, uh, except that uh, it was uh, difficult for them to, explain why would you have troops going uh, from the United Nations uh, where you call for chapter 7 intervention when there is no war this is the only time in history has ever happened that you have deployment of UN troops under chapter 7 which gives them authority to use force against a so called enemy But in the case of Haiti, who is that enemy? Because there was no military force in Haiti. Uh, The so-called Haitian armed forces was disbanded uh, back in uh, 1995. So the United Nations uh, resolution that was taken uh, uh, in 2004 was completely illegal. Nevertheless, They landed in Haiti in June 2004 and took over. Of course, they did not call it uh, a military intervention. They didn't call it an occupation. And so they established a puppet regime in Haiti. And so to this day, what we have is a situation where the foreign powers have all the power, the effective power, in terms of deciding what happens in Haiti, and zero accountability. The second point I wanted to raise with us to, you know, uh, uh, mis- uh, misconceptions that exist is the presence of the Clintons in Haiti, because also sometimes uh, the presence of the Clintons is associated with the 2010 earthquake. The Clintons have been in Haiti way before that, of course. But in terms of Bill Clinton's role as special United Nations envoy to Haiti, this is as early as 2008 that he assumed that role, while his wife, Hillary Clinton, was Secretary of State. Bill Clinton uh, benefited uh, from the fact that the earthquake happened Uh, in uh, February 2010, uh, because as he was already positioned in Haiti, uh, they uh, managed to lobby uh, to have Bill Clinton become one of the key players in the uh, movement to collect funds on behalf of Haitians. And so he became one of the two leads of something called CIRH, uh, the International Committee for the Reconstruction of Haiti, or something of the kind, and uh, essentially collected over $10 billion in the name of Haitians. But uh, several years later, people are still looking for the evidence of that money being used in Haiti, and it's just not there. Uh, and there were some investigations that uh, uh, Haitians were calling for, but Eventually, this became a hush-hush uh, situation, and uh, to this day, uh, there's been no accountability, and that CIRH that Bill Clinton and the so-called Prime Minister of Haiti uh, were co-leading, just folded, uh, with no uh, transparency as to what happened to the uh, $10 billion that were uh, to have been collected. You know, There was a lot of, Press conferences, as you know, after the earthquake, uh, people promising all kinds of uh, 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 donations, contributions, etc. But what we know, though, is that Bill Clinton used that uh, to uh, peddle influence. And so, for instance, you end up having a uh, his brother-in-law, uh, uh, Tony Radham, uh on the board of directors of VCS Mining, one of the uh, gold mining uh, conglomerates who managed to have access to, uh, to uh, a large part of the Haitian territory, as they had by then established a puppet regime uh, led by Michel Martelly, who uh, negotiated those kind of sweet deals for Hillary Clinton. And in return, of course, Hillary Clinton was the person who entered Haiti during the process of an election in 2011, and uh, you know, and insisted that uh, Mr. Martelly uh, be allowed uh, to go to the second round when the electoral process had disqualified him because he didn't have enough votes to go to the second round. But Hillary Clinton insisted uh, in having results reversed. And reversed they were. Um, it was such a scandalous situation that uh, a highly uh, ranked official of the Organization of American States, uh, Ricardo Centenfus, uh denounced this publicly. And he eventually wrote a book about it. But uh, in response, the uh, OAS basically uh, took uh, action to Uh, give this uh, Brazilian some early retirement (laughs) offers uh, so that he couldn't uh, challenge uh, the Clintons who had essentially um, intervened to uh, rig uh, the results of an election in Haiti. And this is why it's uh, some kind of a a strange irony that (laughs) later on it would be Hillary Clinton who is now crying uh, foul <laughs> with regard yeah. to the elections in the United States—that a foreign power had intervened in our election.
0: Jean, I, I've really uh, appreciated uh, the perspectives you've brought to this. Uh, you know, this fifteenth this uh, anniversary. Um. What
1: I have been doing on my end with a few activists in Ottawa is take the time to write to various prime ministers, including the current prime minister, and with a very Single message. That is, we need to have a different, or not different, actually, we need to establish normal relationships with Haiti. There's no need for this racial tension and all of that. What we need to have the stuff is the same thing that was needed uh, in 1791, where a few white idiots. (laughs) had in their mind that the 30,000 of them could keep exploiting 450,000 Africans by simply relying on the support of European forces, uh, uh, and therefore uh, they can continue to, you know, live a lavish life while the vast majority rot in poverty. This is just stupid. The peace can be reestablished quite easily, uh, if it's not being uh, a situation where hatred and, uh, and poverty uh, is being fueled by the powerful foreign embassies.
0: I've been speaking with uh, Jean Saintville. He is an Ottawa based Haitian writer and activist. Uh, you can see more of his articles at the site com, and, as mentioned, on the Global Research website. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Canada, a country that continues to boast about its positive role in the world, had a very diabolical role in Haiti, both in the coup against Aristide but also in the ongoing repression of democratic processes then and since. To share his insights, we're joined by Eve Engler, one of the country's foremost critics of Canada's foreign policy. He's authored nine books on Canadian foreign policy, including Canada in Haiti: Waging War on the Poor Majority, which he co-authored with Anthony Fenton. Eve joins us now from Montreal. Welcome back to the show, Eve. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, according to his own account, President Bertrand Aristide was rounded up by U.S. Marines on February 29th and sent to the Central African Republic. Canadian special forces were on the ground uh, that day, uh, securing the airport, but Canada helped with the planning for the overthrow of Aristide more than a year previous. Can you share with our listeners what we now know about the Ottawa initiative in Meech Lake and, and other efforts to undermine the elected Haitian president?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we know that the Canadian government, um, was involved, uh, militarily, uh, to policing, to diplomatic support, to aid, aid funding uh, in um, in the campaign to destabilize and overthrow Aristides' elected government in uh, 2004. Uh, that led to um, thousands, not just Aristide, not just the president, but uh, thousands of other elected officials um, across the country were, were ousted. Uh, and it also led to a uh, uh, brutal uh, two-year dictatorship that killed. Uh, was responsible for thousands of deaths, and it has uh, um, uh, hurt Haitian politics uh, right up until today in terms of um, uh, sort of uh, leading to greater foreign control of the country. Um, and so, but but going backwards to, um, to uh, the Ottawa Initiative on Haiti, um, on January 31st and February 1st of 2003, uh, the government uh, brought together uh, high-level officials from the George W. Bush administration in the US, a minister from the French government, uh, and officials from the Organization of American States, where they uh, were to discuss Haiti's future. No officials from Haiti's government were uh, invited to this meeting. Um, as was reported on in L'Actualité, which is uh, Quebec's uh, uh, most important uh, news magazine, uh, on March 15, 2003, at this meeting they discussed the fact that Aristide should go, that Haiti should be put under UN trusteeship, and the Haitian military should be recreated. Uh, Thirteen months after this meeting, uh, Aristide was forced out of the country by uh, U.S. Marines, with Canadian uh, troops at the airport and French French troops uh, immediately invading the country. Um, the, Haiti was under essentially put under UN trusteeship uh, for basically uh, until very recently, where UN forces uh, occupied the country. They still do, but in a much smaller number. Uh, and the Haitian military was, uh, was uh, partly recreated by uh, bringing former Haitian military into the Haitian police, uh, which was uh, financed and overseen by the Canadian government. So basically, Canada was involved in, in I don't know if you would use the term plotting the coup, I think you could use that term, but but clearly involved in consolidating the international forces, primarily the U.S., France, and Canada, that would, uh, that would perpetrate uh, the coup, um, and uh, and Haitians are continuing to feel the, the consequences of that. Uh, those, those Canadian decisions, 15 years later.
0: Speaking about consolidating a consensus, uh, strangely, counterintuitively, a number of progressive groups in Canada, including alternative, and uh, a group of NGOs known as the Concentration pour Haiti. Ironically, they assisted in the foreign occupation of Haiti, at least in terms of the narratives uh, that that were being put forward. What compelled those groups to, to, to prop up those narratives in support of effectively in support of the elites in Haiti and abroad, to the detriment of the vulnerable people they were you you'd think they'd be advocating for?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes beyond just uh, basically most Quebec NGOs, a uh, number of English Canadian NGOs to a lesser extent, as well as the major Quebec unions, the Fédération des travailleurs et travailleurs du Québec. Um, the main uh, labor umbrella organization, CLC's counterpart in Quebec, um, they, they clearly supported the coup um, in, in their in their statements uh, in the lead up to the coup, in their statement after the coup, uh, and uh, uh, there's been many stories and, and reports written about written about detailing all the specifics um, of what they'd said and didn't say. Um, but the explanation for the why is, I think, slightly. Uh, complicated centrally important of course is the fact that these these groups receive Canadian government funding uh, including the FTQ for their international operations but but the NGOs like alternatives uh, development and peace um, um, ACOSI, the uh, main NGO umbrella group in Quebec uh, um, they all receive uh, most of or significant shares of their, of their funding from the Canadian government and that Canadian government was, was uh, very much supportive of the coup. Uh, beyond that, these uh, organizations uh, were tied into the intellectual strata of Haitian society. Uh, part of it is based actually on linguistics. Um, so Quebec organizations, uh, they, um, they have significant relations with Haiti, partly on the basis that they claim that Haiti is a French-speaking country. Now, of course, most people in Haiti do not speak French. Everyone in Haiti Maybe ten, possibly twenty percent, but, but, but even possibly less than ten percent of the population um, speaks French. So Quebec organizations, when they interact with Haiti, and there's a long, this goes long history of Canadian, of Quebec missionaries interacting with Haiti, they do so on on the premise that Haiti is a French-speaking country. Now in Haiti, um, it's, it, language is very much a, 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 a tool of class domination. Um, uh, it's the elite that speak French. Uh, they use that um, until very recently. One of the positive things that Aristide did was he valorized Creole uh, at the expense of French, and that was that effectively undermined uh, uh, class rule. Um, and so, so, Quebec organizations, if they go to Haiti on the basis that it's a French-speaking country, they they reinforce uh, this linguistic uh, class uh, uh, domination. Um, and so basically Quebec NGOs were very much tied into a sort of strata of, uh, of, um, of uh, intellectual, not the business elite, but the intellectual uh, uh, elite of Haiti, and, and those, those sectors had very much um, uh, moved away from, from uh, Aristide and, and Aristide, which, who was still supported by um, the vast majority of the population, who, of course, are, are extremely poor. Um, so there's a mix of government funding was central to explaining it um, there's also some other particular dynamics in terms of language in terms of how NGOs uh, get oriented towards um, intellectual elites um, in, in, uh, in in impoverished countries um, but uh, but the, the story of the role of NGOs and of uh, supposed left organizations uh, the role the, the extent to which they played a damaging role in Haiti is a, is a story that's a very important story, uh, and and Haiti is sort of a uh, uh, it's the, uh, the highest NGO per capita anywhere in the world, so it's a it's a it's a perfect uh, place to look at um, some of the worst elements of of how the whole uh, system of, of foreign international NGOs uh, leads to undermining um, uh, sovereignty, leads to undermining. Um, uh, sort of a political struggle uh, that uh, I think is necessary to uh, to get a more equal uh, equal world.
0: The Republic of NGOs, I guess, is what you'd call it. I mean, the, that that points to some interesting dynamics. The the role of foreign aid in you know, with all the money that comes to it and the activities that that can spur. I guess it's hard for a lot of these NGOs to to turn that down because I mean they may have other valid uh, activities in other countries and uh, but in order to to do the work that they want and need to do they they, they there may be a bit of a, a Faustian trade off that uh, you know undermines uh, their uh, their mission.
2: Well, in the case of Alternatives, uh, which which was an NGO very much associated with the World Social Forum, somebody, an NGO that uh, had people like Judy Rebick who were on its board. Uh, uh, they, had, they, they had an association with Naomi Klein. Um, it was absolutely explicit. They did not operate in Haiti before the coup. They followed the massive influx of Canadian aid funding after the coup. And they even, in one story I wrote about this, they, they even, um, at one point, the Harper government cut their funding. And uh, they ahead of Alternatives, complained saying that, well, why why are you cutting our funding when we're doing uh, uh, positive things in Haiti, Afghanistan, and Iraq? In all three of those cases, they follow, there's, there's something that I've dubbed the aid intervention principle. So when U.S. Or, or Canadian troops are killing people or occupying a place, there's generally an influx of Canadian aid. The clearest example of that was Afghanistan, uh, Haiti, and Iraq with the main recipient of Canadian aid in the 2000s, the, the, the top three recipients of Canadian aid in the 2000s. Um, and so, oh, the head of Alternatives actually in one article he wrote, he he, he complained that hey, you're cutting our, our our funding when we're doing such a good job uh, in Haiti, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Um, but basically, they clearly associating uh, their work um, with the you know imperial occupation uh, efforts um, and the organization as when it's receiving 70% of its funding from the federal government, of course they have to uh, uh, be responsive to the desires of the federal government and where the federal government is looking for more um, more, you know, aid aid work. That's where uh, alternatives and other NGOs will, will, will go because, again, they're getting their funding from, uh, from the government, and if the government wants to uh, support the U.S. occupation of Haiti, uh, Afghanistan, or Iraq, well, uh, alternatives will try to find uh, uh, something they can they can do if they're you know, in those countries if they're paid by the government to do it.
0: Hmm. Now. You know, turning back to some of the particular ways uh, in which Canada's been, you know, actively involved in, uh, uh, you know, undermining the democratic process. Uh, in your book, the Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, there's a section where the the name Jean-Pierre Kingsley comes up. He is the former head of Elections Canada, but he was also involved in a group that played a role in overseeing and influencing the Haitian elections, the International Foundation of Election Systems. Uh, what have you been able to determine about how those, you know, supposed watchdogs effectively uh, involved themselves in, in the democratic mechanisms and within Haiti?
2: Well, there was a report about uh, ten months after the coup from the University of Miami um, that went into uh, IFIS and uh, their role in supporting opposition groups within Haiti, and they received significant funding from the U.S. government. Uh, a little bit of funding, I believe, from the Canadian government uh, for building up opposition to the Aristide government. Uh, that was detailed in that report. Um, and uh, Jean-Pierre Kingsley specifically played a—he headed up the, the oversight of the electoral commission in the election after the coup in 2006. And um, and he—I uh, mean—the election itself was a totally fraudulent affair. Uh, Lava Last the, political party there indeed the popular political party in the country was not allowed to participate in those elections so so just just overseeing them um, was giving a sort of a stamp of approval to this very dubious affair um, but then uh, more specifically even uh, once election happened and um, basically preval uh, preval um, uh, joined the election late. He was a former president. He, was, uh, he had been Aristide's prime minister. He was somebody who was viewed as uh, not going to just follow Washington's line. Um, and uh, he, he entered the election, and he, was, he clearly won the election by a large, uh, large, uh, large margin. Um, uh, but there was enough effort to, uh, to uh, tamper with the vote, and there was, a, there was actually even a situation where like, thousands of ballots were found burnt. And despite, you know, which led to massive protests, despite like clear efforts at at uh, rigging the election, Kingsley put out a statement uh, at the time supporting the election, uh, and even even elements of the coup government's electoral council were not willing to uh, uh, to endorse the election. Um, And here you had the head of Elections Canada, uh, you know, fully uh, uh, endorsing it. And then after he left his position in Elections Canada, uh, Jean-Paul Kingsley went to work for IFAS, I believe he headed up the organization. Um, So you really, you know, in in the case of the coup in Haiti, you really had all elements of the Canadian state and Canadian political life supporting this coup, from from NGOs to Elections Canada, to the Canadian military, to the Canadian police, RCMP, to the Canadian aid agency funding it, to Canadian diplomats. Um, uh to obviously the corporate media, and the dominant media, um, providing uh, you know justifications and, and huge amounts of propaganda about what was happening. Um, um, but you know the, the instance of Elections Canada and particularly John Clark Kingsley was just one piece of you know, the multifaceted um, uh, Canadian assaults against Haitians really. Um, and it's one that hasn't actually unfortunately ended right up, in, uh, up until today.
0: I noticed that uh, there was uh, an article that you put out on February 22nd the Canadian military in Haiti why and it, it talks about um, you know Canadian troops having been deployed to Haiti uh without uh, the uh, consent of the public or a parliamentary vote and and you bring up uh, an outfit that uh, you know, as uh, that you refer to, or that's referred to as a Canadian Special Operations Forces Command, uh, you know, overseeing these patrols on the streets. C- could you give us, you know, what insights you have about uh, what those people are doing there and, and under what authority they can be present there?
2: Well, there's, there's two parts. First of all, um, people may have been uh, maybe aware that on as of February 7th, there was... Uh, Massive demonstration, general strike paralyzed most of urban area of Haiti, particularly in port au but in the smaller cities as well. And uh, and that general strike went on for uh, almost ten days. Uh, there still continued to be protests, but the actual general strike seems to have been broken. Now there was um, a great deal of repression. Uh, dozens of people were killed uh, in those protests by the police. These the, the general strike of February seventh um, follows on massive protests in in in, uh, in uh, October November and actually even bigger protests in the summer. In the summer, they were protesters were able to have the, uh, the prime minister uh, fall and and uh, the recent protests been calling for the the uh, illegitimate president uh, to go, um, partly tied around um, uh, corruption and the current president and his predecessor, which are from the same party, that they had they had embezzled uh, hundreds of millions, maybe into the billions of dollars of, of money from the Petro Caribe Fund, the fund that the Venezuelan government set up in 2006, actually began with the Preval government, um, that gave Haiti and, and some other Caribbean countries uh, oil at discounted prices, which was supposed to be then used to fund uh, uh, social programs and, and infrastructure and whatnot. And the Martelly government and the Jovenel Moïse, current government, Martelly being the previous government, uh, appear to have embezzled huge amounts of uh, money. So there have been major protests calling for the removal of uh, Jovenel Moïse, the president, uh, and it's almost all of Haitian society seems to be behind these protests. Even uh, the slums have been, you know, poor neighborhoods have been calling for the removal of Moïse since before he was, quote-unquote, elected. It was only 18% of the population that participated in the, uh, in the election, the so-called election, all kinds of fraud. Um, um, so, so in this context of massive popular uh, uprising against uh, this government, um, there have been, as I mentioned, um, police have been killing protesters, dozens of people killed uh, in recent, bit over the past couple of weeks, but also even dozens more in the previous months. Um, some of this has been documented. There was a terrible massacre in La Saline, uh, uh, a poor neighborhood in Port-au-Prince, uh, back in November. Um, and so, so the in this context, uh, Canadian special forces were deployed to Haiti, and they were photographed at the at the Port-au-Prince airport uh, uh, on February 15th, according to Haiti Haiti Information Project that that uh, photographed uh, the Canadian. Uh, at least one Canadian troop with, you know, in full gear with the M16, and then a couple of um, of uh, uh, Canadian troops in uh, in plain clothes. Um, I asked um, the preeminent uh, journalist on um, on the Canadian military uh, um, whether. who who he thought these Canadian troops were that were photographed, he told me he thought they were Joint Task Force Two, which is the Canadian Special Forces, the the elite of the elite of the Canadian Special Forces, and that one of them was probably um, uh, another element of Canadian Special Forces. Um, uh, None of this was discussed. There's no Canadian media that has, to my understanding, mentioned the fact there were Canadian troops sent to Haiti. Um, uh, So this was done in total secrecy, uh, though, again, it's been, you know, Documented, um, and, uh, and so the question becomes, well, why, were, why were they deployed? And um, it seems pretty clear to me that either indirectly or directly, they were deployed to support this unpopular government that was facing a general strike demanding it, it go. Um, uh, according to the Haiti Information Project, they believed that the Korean troops were actually helping the uh, family members of the government to flee the country because it was a lot of instability. Uh, major protests. Um, the deployment of Canadian troops fits alongside the recent Canadian uh, uh, diplomatic support for Jovenel Maurice. and Canadian officials have, Trudeau met with the Prime Minister uh, in December amidst, again, amidst these massive protests. Canada's part of the so-called core group of Friends of Haiti that have put out all these, with like the U.S., France, and, and a couple other countries, that have put out these statements supporting the government despite these massive protests. Uh, Canada has been financing the Haitian police. Uh, Canadian ambassador has been uh, uh, has this photos on his Twitter account of attending um, uh, ceremonies uh, for the Canadian, for the Haitian police that that are, have been responsible for firing on uh, on the protests. Um, so so, but I, I don't have any answer. I, I don't know exactly why they were were, were deployed, but we know that there were Canadian special forces uh, deployed to the port au airport amidst. This massive popular uprising, uh, and there's been absolutely no mention about it in Canadian Parliament, and Canadian media, um, and, of course, this fits with what we know about the Joint Task Force 2 and Canadian Special Forces. Part of why they are uh, desirable from the government's perspective is because they don't have to divulge any information about them. Almost everything about them is secret. Only find out what they want to release um, uh, to the media. and uh, And so the Canadian government can deploy these jtf-2 forces and uh, and the public is none the wiser and they can they there's uh, there's stories of them being deployed in all kinds of um, very questionable political ways including of course on the night that Aristide said he was overthrown on February 29th 2004 when US Marines took him to the airport uh, in public there were um, according to a number of different media reports there were 30 Canadian troops, uh, including snipers on the roof of the airport, um, securing the airport uh, while the elected president says he was a uh kidnapped by U.S. Marines and dumped in the Central
0: African Republic. I, I wanted to bring up with you the the question of SNC-Lavalin, because that's uh, this engineering firm in Quebec that's been in the news very much lately in relation to a, a scandal which could lead to the downfall of, of the prime ministership of Justin Trudeau, if not the entire liberal government. He apparently, uh, his the prime minister's office attempted to put pressure on this uh, attorney general, uh, the uh, uh, Jody Wilson raybould to uh you know basically offer a kind of uh, plea deal that that would remediate this company in the wake of of corruption charges that stemming back several years and, and basically not prevent them from uh bidding on other contracts uh i i th- i believe there's a lot more to this story than simply the way it's portrayed currently in the media is just sort of like uh Uh, partisan cronyism and and that whole just trying to get votes in Quebec. Could you please talk a little bit about SNC-Lavalin and and its involvement in Haiti uh, during the post-coup years, and and for that matter, uh, some of the other things that uh, it's been doing in the world that are quite relevant?
2: Yeah, I mean, SNC-Lavalin is is Canada's leading disaster capitalist firm. Halliburton is kind of like Canada's Halliburton, which received a lot of attention after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, the sun never sets on Essence de Lavalin. They have operations all around the world, most countries um, they operate in, uh, and they um, they were uh, heavily involved in reconstruction after the coup of 2004. They uh, had a number of projects paid for by the Canadian aid agency in Haiti. Uh, also they, they helped uh, build the big Canadian embassy that was uh, built right after the uh, 2004 coup. Uh, in political plans. To the extent the media provides some sort of critical stuff about S and C, uh it sort of talks about how S and C's been lobbying liberal government officials to avoid uh a court case and they just wanna pay a fine and they don't want to you don't want to be blacklisted by by Canadian government. They're already blacklisted by the World Bank for uh, funding for I think, I believe for a decade. Um uh this is a company uh that is it's 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 roots Uh, And its dependence on Canadian government support are long-standing. It's right at the core, right at the center of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, You go back to the early '60s; they began in in India uh, with a a project financed by the Canadian uh, International predecessor, the International Development Agency. Um, They ran Canadian uh, diplomatic outposts in in, in, uh, some uh, former French colonies. Uh, after uh, uh, independence, the countries that Canada didn't have uh, diplomatic outposts. They were financed by CETA for that. Uh, they uh, have projects. Uh, they, they were the ones responsible for the big dam, the signature dam project in Afghanistan during, during the Canadian occupation in Kandahar, a $15 million project. They actually had a $700 million project running the uh, uh, Canadian base, with the U.S. Uh, company in, uh, in Kandahar. Um, this is this is a, a company that is uh, deeply uh, tied into Canadian foreign policy. Um, yes, the lobbying visits of of SNC officials, I'm sure, were had some influence over uh, uh, Liberal uh, policy in terms of uh, trying to help them out. Um, but the relationship of SNC uh, and their ties to the Canadian state and, and you know, former. Uh, official King government officials go work for SNC and you know back this the back and forth go, that goes on um, this is something that's very uh, deeply rooted and it's the kind of a company that's just the, the number of controversial projects that they have been part of is is all kind of only, almost endless you know from the three Gorges Dam in China in the 1980s uh, to uh, providing bullets to the uh, American occupation of Iraq uh, they were was in 2004, they got a huge contract to provide bullets to the American military because the American military was using so many bullets in Iraq. Um, to uh, 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 their nuclear, they have a nuclear component, uh, on and on and on. So, SMC is a company that uh, has uh, very much benefited from uh, Canadian foreign policy, Canadian aid policy, and uh, it's a, obviously a very powerful company. Uh, uh, company in terms of shaping uh, Canadian foreign policy, and and there's one other element that's kind of interesting that's not been mentioned. I mean, they've been caught bribing, and in corruption in innumerable countries uh, across Africa and Bangladesh and uh, all across the world. That this you know of examples that have been proven. One element that I haven't seen mentioned about this is. Uh, uh, the, this is actually partly an outgrowth of Canadian government policy because Canada, until very recently, has had the most lax regulations around uh, international bribery of, of, uh, 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 of, of Canadian companies. The U.S. brought in legislation back in 1977 that to, to, to hold companies uh, uh, American companies responsible domestically if they were caught in bribing abroad. The, I, actually, I actually have a, a quote from the former... Head of uh, Lavalin, which merged SNC and Lavalin merged, and talking about how uh, they were uh, uh, better placed than American companies to provide bribes because it was legal in Canada right into right until the '90s. Um, and and it wasn't until like 2011 that the Canadian government was basically pressured by the G7 by G7, G7 initiatives to bring in some uh, corruption rules around uh, Canadian companies abroad. Uh, but it wasn't until like 2011 that the RCMP finally pursued its first effort at, at, at a uh, Canadian company for bribing abroad. So even SNC's uh, uh, sort of role in international corruption uh, and bribing, that's really sort of an outgrowth of, of, of the lax legislation in this country around uh, Canadian companies bribing abroad. And they, they literally could just write it off. That was until, until the 1990s, early 90s, how companies were able to just write off their international bribes as part of, uh, as part of business expenditures. Um, so the there 's a whole story about SNC that uh, that 's uh, you know not being uh, pursued in this uh, in this sort of scandal focused uh, media attention of what we've got uh, going on with trudeau right now
0: eve it 's always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us once again thanks for having me we 've been speaking with Eve Engler, a Canadian foreign policy critic and author of several books including Canada in Haiti. Waging War on the Poor Majority from 2005. You can find more of his writing at the website, yveengler.com. That's Y V E S, angler.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.